there are certain uh, works of literature that are very memorable, especially when you consider the opening lines of those works of literature. And one such work is a novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And I imagine that you are familiar with those opening lines where Dickens wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the season of despair, it was the spring of hope. And so Tale of Two Cities is a story that Dickens told that really explains or depicts the plight of the French peasantry during the French Revolution. And he sort of contrasts that and makes parallels with life in London, which was definitely different than life in Paris during that very turbulent time. Well, the story of redemptive history is very much a tale of two cities. You have the city of man on one hand, which is held in contrast with the city of God on the other. And the book of Revelation shows us how the city of man, which is in rebellion to God, ultimately is going to be brought to ruin, while the city of God is going to be established for all eternity. And so with that in mind, I'd ask that you turn with me to the 19th chapter of Revelation. And this morning we're going to look at the first several verses of this 19th chapter. And by way of context, the previous two chapters have described mystery Babylon and its destruction. And Babylon is symbolic of the city of man. Uh, man's society in opposition to God. And uh, Revelation 17 and 18 shows how false religion and the worship of stuff and the collapse of the economy and all such of that that man worships and goes after as an idol is going to be brought to total ruin. And the 18th chapter reveals that this is something lamented by the world. Now, the world will mourn over the collapse of its system. And one has even suggested that the mourning or the funeral song of Revelation chapter 18 is a song sung throughout the ages by all of those who've given their all to this world only to be disappointed by the results. And how tragic it would be for us to live for that which is ultimately destined to come to ruin. And so the world will lament and mourn the collapse of its system in the last days, and yet it's different from a heavenly perspective. Because as we open chapter 19 and read these first several verses, the tenor and the tone of the text changes drastically. And it's not the language of mourning, but it's the language of celebration as all of heaven is celebrating the return of Jesus Christ, which is declared and described down in verse number 11. So read with me beginning in verse number 1. The Apostle John writes and says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of the great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now again, that's descriptive of Mystery Babylon, which has been described in chapters 17 and 18. This is the system of Antichrist that's going to come under judgment in the last days, just before the second coming of Jesus. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of the great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I want to speak from this subject this morning, heaven's hallelujah. And you'll notice that the word hallelujah is used at least four times in this passage of Scripture. And so by the time we get to this 19th chapter, this is the seventh time that John is given a vision of something that's happening in heaven. And key to understanding the chronology and the sequence of the book of Revelation is understanding that there is constantly a shifting scene, often from one chapter or one section to another. The scene shifts back and forth from things that are happening on earth to things which are happening in heaven. And circumstances that are happening in heaven and the throne room of heaven are determining events that are taking place on planet earth. And really chapters 6 through 19 describe the judgment of the last days during the tribulation period during which the Lamb of God who's taken the scroll from the Father, he's broken seven seals, initiating those seven initial judgments. With the breaking of the seventh seal, there's the sounding of seven trumpet judgments which are a little bit more severe in nature. And with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, there are seven bold judgments in sort of rapid succession, one right after the other, that constitute the final end-time wrath of God at the end of the tribulation on Babylon and on the system of Antichrist as it's all been brought under judgment. And so now, as we get to Revelation chapter 19, the language is, is, is language of celebration. While the world is mourning its losses, heaven is celebrating and singing hallelujah simply because of what it means. 
And it means that Jesus Christ, the rightful heir of the universe, he's coming to establish his rule and his reign upon the earth. And that's something for which all of heaven breaks out into celebration and worship. And so what you find here in this 19th chapter is a worshipful scene in heaven. And you hear this word, hallelujah, mentioned at least four times. Now that's a word we're so familiar with within the church You may be surprised to learn that this is really the only passage in the Bible where the word is actually used, and it's used four times. Uh, This word hallelujah is a compound word uh, taken from two Hebrew terms, the first of which is hallel, uh, which means to praise or to worship or to exalt. There are certain psalms that are known as psalms of Hallel, which were sung or recited or read uh, during times of corporate worship in Old Testament Israel. Yah, this is, this is a way of referring to the covenant God of Israel. So literally, here's what hallelujah means. Praise the covenant God. Praise to the Lord God. And so heaven is singing this hallelujah. It's an anthem of worship. And John is brought into this worshipful scene, and it's something that is quite moving. And so why all of the hallelujahs? Well, there's several reasons, and we'll get to those in just a moment. But the main overarching reason is that Jesus Christ is about to return and establish his kingdom. And that return is described down in verse number 11. And so again, keep in mind, by the time we reach this chapter, as far as the chronology of Revelation is concerned, we've been through some incredible future history. And and keep in mind, this is something that we will never do historically because we, as the church, will be taken out before the events of the tribulation. And so though we won't be there historically, uh, we are able to see what will happen in this particular time on earth through the lens of prophecy. And so when you read Revelation, you you read these judgments that are going to be characteristic at the end of the age, which we as the church have been saved from. And so here's Christ coming back to establish his kingdom. All of heaven is erupting into this chorus of worship, this anthem of worship, rejoicing in heaven. And the word that's being expressed that John hears over and over again is this word, hallelujah. And so this should serve as a reminder that worship is absolutely central to life. You've been created for the purpose of worship. But we've been made for the purpose of worship. And biblical worship so satisfies our personality that we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. And oftentimes, we tend to get so concerned with the packaging of worship when God is more concerned about the integrity of the worshiper than he is the packaging of the worship. It's an amazing thing. You travel the world and you spend time with believers in a foreign mission context, you'll find uh, believers who were engaged in worship that reflects various components of their culture. But one thing is amazing to me, this word hallelujah is a word that transcends every culture and every language barrier because it's the same word no matter the language, no matter the culture. The same thing's true of that word amen, uh, which is also used here in this particular passage down in verse number four. Amen is a, is a term that means so be it. 
And so John, he's transported into the heavenly throne room and he sees this multitude of worshipers and heavenly creatures and angelic beings all engaged in worship and shouting anthems of hallelujah, crying out, amen, so be it. God has been righteous and true in his judgments and now this is the moment for which all of heaven has been waiting. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish his reign and his kingdom upon the earth. And so we cry out with those in heaven, hallelujah, even so come Lord Jesus. So what's the reason behind these heavenly hallelujahs? Well, number one, notice with me, heaven sings its hallelujah chorus when salvation is experienced. Heaven is shouting hallelujah because of the experience of salvation. Notice there in verse number one, uh, John hears this, what seemed to be loud voice of a great multitude in heaven all crying out hallelujah. Now I imagine that at some point you perhaps have been to some type of sporting event where there have been tens of thousands of people in attendance. Maybe you've been to a football game and the home team scores a touchdown and Man, the stadium literally just rattled with the shouts of celebration as everyone was celebrating the home team. Or maybe, you know, you've been to a major league baseball game or a playoff game, and uh, it's the bottom of the night, the score's tied, and, and man, you've got your biggest hitter who's up to bat, bases loaded, surely he's gonna put one over the fence, and when he does, fireworks, The crowd chants, it's almost like an earthquake because it's so moving. Now you take that and you multiply that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, that's what John is privileged to witness as he hears this innumerable multitude in heaven crying out to God, shouting hallelujah because of salvation. Excited about salvation, glorifying God because of his great salvation. And it ought to be a reminder to us that heaven gets excited when people are saved. What is it that brings joy to heaven? Listen, it's the salvation and the redemption of sinners. And all of heaven is echoing its hallelujah, declaring that God is worthy of worship because of salvation, glory, and power all belong to him. The word salvation there in verse number one translates a term that means rescue or deliverance. And it's a reminder of what fallen humanity is most in need of. Man needs rescue. Why? Well, because man is lost. Apart from Jesus Christ, he's lost in his sins, dead and in need of life, lost and in need of rescue. And his greatest need is the salvation that only God can bring. And the salvation of the lost, this is something that brings joy to heaven. And perhaps there's no place in the Bible that illustrates this any more so than Luke chapter 15. There you'll find a a series of parables that Jesus told to illustrate how all of heaven celebrates when one sinner repents and comes to faith. All of heaven shouts loudest praise when people get saved, when salvation is experienced. You ever lost anything that was valuable to you? I mean, I think all of us know the pain of losing and the frustration of losing something that's valuable. And then the experience of joy finding that which was lost after a period of time. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I somehow lost my class ring that I had worked hard for and had purchased with my own money. 
I was out in public somewhere, must have laid it down. I grieved over the loss of that which was valuable to me. Well, I got a call about two weeks later out of the blue. There was a guy who lived off the the highway about 10 miles out of town. He was out working in his yard one day, and he just so happened to come across my class ring in his yard. My name was engraved on the inside of the ring, and so somehow he tracked down our phone number, got in touch with me, and said, hey, have you lost something? I'm like, "Uh, yeah, I have. Thank you very much. And it's a wonderful thing whenever you recover that which was lost, especially if it's valuable. And listen, the theme of Scripture is God's joy in seeking and saving lost people. Jesus said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And this brings great joy to the heart of God. What is it that ought to bring joy to our heart? It's seeing men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ. What is it that will bring joy to the church unlike anything else? It's seeing people come to faith in Christ. That's why Vacation Bible School is so very important. Those of you who are working and those of you who are inviting children who are going to be here every night this week, you need to be praying to that end that God will seek and save the lost, that children and families will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what really gets heaven excited. Oftentimes we get excited and worked up about all of the wrong stuff. Amen, Pastor. We tend to sweat the small stuff. And we tend to overlook the big stuff. Let me tell you something. Heaven celebrates the big stuff. And the big stuff is people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Looking unto Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It was joy that took our Lord to the cross. What was the joy? Knowing that his sacrifice would not be in vain. Knowing that people like me and people like you would be saved and come to faith in him. This is the joy that took our Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. It's the same kind of joy that my life and your life ought to be motivated by as those who love Jesus and prioritize what's near and dear to his heart. So heaven celebrates and erupts in hallelujah over the salvation of the lost. By the way, you know your salvation is is threefold. Uh, There's a present tense, past tense, and future tense to your salvation. Oftentimes, we only think about salvation in terms of past tense, justification. Justification means that I I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ has saved me from wrath. I don't have to die and go to hell because I'm saved. Thank God for that. I'm, one, I'm, I'm wonderfully blessed. Thank God that through faith in Jesus Christ, sinners are made righteous, justified. But that's one component of my salvation. There's a present tense aspect to your salvation too, known as sanctification, which means presently, moment by moment, day by day, I'm being saved from sin's power. I have been saved from sin's penalty. That's justification. I am being saved from sin's power. That's sanctification. And God is using circumstances in my life, and he's using his word, and he's using his church, and he's using people to mold me, shape me, sanctify me, and make me more and more like Jesus, thereby breaking the power of sin in my life. And yet, it gets even better because there's still a future tense to the believer's salvation, and it's a word known as glorification. 
And glorification means that one day he's going to save me from sin's presence. I've been saved from sin's penalty. That's justification. I'm being saved from sin's power. That's sanctification. And I will be saved entirely one day from sin's presence, and that's justification, or that's glorification. And by the way, this is something so sure that the Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 8, and he uses aorist tense verbs in the indicative mood, which means that our salvation is secure from God's perspective. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, listen to this, past tense language from God's perspective, he also glorified. Which means my salvation is as secure as it can be. It is absolutely sure, rock solid. Nothing can alter it. Nothing can take it away from me. Nothing can remove me from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ my Lord. And if heaven can erupt in hallelujah over this, don't you think you and I ought to be singing hallelujah and thanking God for the experience of salvation? So heaven sings hallelujah when salvation is experienced. Now, secondly, notice how heaven sings hallelujah when justice is executed. Verse 2, John hears the heavenly multitude singing because God's judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who's corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he's avenged on her the blood of his servants. In other words, God has dealt with the problem of evil that has long plagued man's world, that has long corrupted God's good creation. And all throughout history, the people of God have been deeply grieved over unrighteousness and injustice, and we've long anticipated God's justice. And the cry has often been, how long, O Lord? This was true in the days of Israel's prophets. It was the prophet Habakkuk who opens up his book, the first few verses in chapter 1. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? The law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice is perverted. And this was something that caused Habakkuk and the other prophets of Israel to deeply grieve. It was the cry of the apostles. This was the cry of the psalmist. This is the cry of the martyred saints, uh, according to um, the fifth and sixth chapters of Revelation. And so there's this cry and this longing for justice. When is it, Lord, that you're going to deal with the problem of evil throughout man's world? You know, we hear a lot about justice, the pursuit of justice, the cry for justice. You think about the legal system of our time. By the way, I did a Google search, and I asked this question, how many laws are there in the United States? And I thought, well, maybe a few thousand. Well, one of the results was a website called Global Regulation, which supposedly it keeps up with this kind of thing uh, throughout the nations of the world. And here's what it said. There are 2.7 million laws and regulations from the United States in their database. Now, I assume that that's local, county, state, federal, all things considered. By the way, you want to know why there are 2.7 million laws in our country? Because <laughs> we can't obey the 10 that God originally gave to us. 
And then to enforce those laws, you've got upwards of a million police officers. There are all kinds of consequences to those who break the law, ranging from fines to execution and everything in between. The courts in our country face 100 million cases every year trying to litigate the law. 400,000 federal courts convene every year with their cases. You've got 30,000 plus judges in our country. There are two and a half million people who are incarcerated. That's a 500% increase in the last 40 years. So you've got millions of personnel, millions of laws, trillions of dollars that are spent, all in this attempt to try to restrain sinful man. And perhaps the irony of our time is that so many in our time are crying out for justice while at the same time denying the only one who defines what is just, and that's God himself. And my friend, you can't have it both ways. You can't have justice apart from an objective universal lawgiver. And so here's the deal. Man is lawless by nature. And he cannot do anything to restrain himself. And let me tell you what's happening. Where there's the denial of the objective lawgiver and a denial of God in a society, and yet there's still this cry for justice, you want to know what will fill the void in that society? Bigger and stronger government will fill that void. And when you get there, listen, at that point it's survival of the fittest, and the strongest make the rules, and therein lies the problem that has plagued man's existence. Man needs a king. He needs a just king. He needs a righteous king. And there's only one who qualifies. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. <laughs> And his name is called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so what you find here in Revelation chapter 19 is God keeping his promise and all of heaven is crying out, hallelujah, because God has kept his promise. The judge is coming. And you'd better repent. And you'd better surrender to him and his lordship. Why? Because he's coming. He's coming. And that's something that heaven shouts hallelujah for. So heaven shouts hallelujah when salvation is experienced and when justice is executed. But then notice third, John sees that heaven shouts hallelujah when God is exalted. Verse 5, from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants and you who fear him, small and great. Verse 4, he sees the 24 elders, which I believe is symbolic of the raptured church. He sees the four living creatures who fell down and worshiped God and they're shouting hallelujah. And so what's happening here, God is being exalted. And by the way, verse 5 ought to be an encouragement to you. Praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. There is no insignificant servant in the kingdom of God, but all are noticed. 
all are noticed, all are recognized. John, verse 6, sees this multitude once more like the roar of many waters. I imagine Niagara Falls in my mind. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls and just heard the thunderous cascade of those waterfalls? John hears this mighty, mighty multitude crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. By the way, George Frederick Handel took for his inspiration this passage of Scripture whenever he composed his masterpiece, Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Literally translated, the Lord God omnipotent has begun to reign. And that's not suggesting that heaven's throne has been without occupant. Which, by the way, I think there are times in our lives we act as though that were the case. We worry over things beyond our control. We seek to control or try to manipulate our situation or manipulate others to get what we want. We act in the flesh, and when we do that, we always do so out of a lack of faith and understanding that God is sovereign in his rule and in his reign. I'm not saying that we absolve ourselves of responsibility because, listen, we need to put our hand to the plow. We need to be responsible. We need to make the most of the opportunities and work hard and not resign ourselves to fate. When we acknowledge that God is in control, that's not what we mean by that at all. But rather, we can commit ourselves to him and submit ourselves to him in confident obedience, totally surrendering our circumstances and lives to him. I don't have to fear the future. I don't have to cave in to despair. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on your body and all those kinds of things because your life is so much more than that. And he says, let me just give you a couple of object lessons. Why don't you consider, consider the lilies of the field and then consider the birds of the air? If God takes care of the grass of the field, if he takes care of the birds of the air, will he not much more take care of his children? O ye of little faith. And said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you or me. I'm glad that I've got a heavenly father. That's a good thing to be reminded of on this Father's Day. So the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This means that the rule of heaven has now come to earth with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he comes again, Jesus is going to take back from the usurper that which rightfully belongs to him. And God is exalted. Christ is enthroned. And this is something that all of heaven shouts hallelujah over. It's the marriage of the Lamb. Verse 7, let's rejoice and let's exalt and let's give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now listen, it's a funeral song in chapter 18, but it's wedding bells here in chapter 19. It's a funeral dirge, lamenting Babylon in chapter 18, But it's the wedding march triumphant here in chapter 19 as Jesus Christ comes. And by the way, on that wedding day, it's not all about the bride, but it's all about the groom. Are you listening to me? 
The bride has made herself ready. There's a marriage that's getting ready to take place. It was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the very thing that the Apostle Paul wrote about in that great chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. When he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, listen to this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here you have the church triumphant who's going to be returning with Jesus Christ when he returns and establishes his rule and reign upon the earth. Chuck Swindoll says that no longer will the church be marred with conflict on that day. No longer will it be tainted with division. No longer will it be soiled with heresy, but all of those wrinkles are going to be ironed out. And here Jesus is coming with his spotless, radiant bride. And that's something that heaven shouts hallelujah over. So heaven sings hallelujah when salvation is experienced, when justice is executed, when God is exalted. And then one final thing, notice how heaven sings hallelujah when truth is expressed and upheld. Verse 9, the angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, you see that? There's a marriage that's going to take place. There's a wedding that's going to take place between the lamb who's returned with his bride. But notice that there are also those who are blessed who will be invited as guests to that marriage. And who are they? Well, listen, these are men and women who come to faith in Christ during that tribulation period. You know the gospel's going to be preached during the seven-year tribulation period. There are going to be people who come, to, who come to Christ. There are going to be a lot of people who will be saved and who will be invited as guests to this wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb. And notice how John is given these true and reassuring words there in verse 9. The angel says, these are the true words of God. And I imagine that was something that was quite reassuring to the apostle's heart. Especially when you consider the fact that he had been exiled to Patmos, which was a barren, rocky, lonely prison colony, all for the sake of his faith. And as he's looking around at his circumstances, and perhaps he's gauging his own feelings, it doesn't necessarily feel that the Lord God omnipotent is reigning. Seems like Rome is ruling. It seems like Rome in its dictatorship is exercising its dominion and wreaking havoc over the church of the day. And if John were to simply look at those circumstances, it would discourage him much in the same way that you and I could be discouraged when we look about all that's going on in the world around us. And we ask the question, how long, O Lord? How long must evil persist? When is it that you're going to do something about it? How long, how long, how long? Let me, ask, let me just tell you, that answer is given right here in Revelation chapter 19 with the coming of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, and being reassured of this truth, this leads John to worship. Verse 10, he falls down and worships the angel. But notice he's, he's corrected. Don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant with you and all of your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus, this is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, it's what it's all about. 
Revelation is all about the worship and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we don't read Revelation or study it to try to become prophecy experts. No, we read it so that we can become better worshipers. So that we can echo our amen to heaven's hallelujah. We got a lot to worship about, don't we, and thank God for. Let's stand for prayer this morning. You know, heaven has a very different value system than earth. And heaven celebrates what earth often grieves. And it grieves what earth often celebrates. And that's why Colossians chapter 3, there's such a great reminder where the Apostle Paul says to us as believers, don't, don't love the world because you've been saved from all of that. But set your affections on things above and not on things here on the earth. Thank God for this glimpse into the heavenly throne room where we're given a glimpse at what heaven really rejoices over. The salvation of the lost. Justice being served. God being exalted. Christ being enthroned and truth being upheld. That's what heaven rejoices in and shouts hallelujah over it ought to be the same things that the church says hallelujah over every head bowed every eye closed if you don't know Jesus Christ you need to be saved and you need to be saved because you're lost but you see valuable things valuable things we classify as lost something that's not valuable to me I don't really spend a lot of my time looking for it whenever it's lost but if there's something lost it's often because it's valuable and let me tell you something you are far more valuable to God than a class ring you're far more valuable to God you're not just some project or commodity or an item to be discarded no you've been made uniquely in the image of God but because of sin Mankind is lost and in need of rescue. But God has done everything necessary through sending his own son, Jesus, who bled and who died and who suffered on the cross in my place and in your place as the one and only sacrifice for sin and substitute. And God's raised him from the dead to endless life. And he's King of kings and he's Lord of lords. And every person who comes to Jesus Christ confessing him as Lord, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wonderful promise. If you're lost and you need rescue, if you're spiritually dead and you need life, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus now. Don't delay here in a moment when we sing, I'm going to ask you to just slip out of where you've been seated. Come and let me pray with you. Let some other pastors pray with you. Stick around even after the service and talk to one of us. Thank God that our God is in the saving business. Lord, thank you for these heavenly hallelujahs. And what a reminder it is, Lord, to me as a believer, to us as a church, this is what we really ought to be living for. Have your will and way in our hearts and lives. For Christ's sake, amen.